This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenschein. Dr. Kristen Benson is a former associate professor of human development and family science at North Dakota State University. She is now an associate professor in the human development and psychological counseling program at Appalachian State University, where she serves as a program director of the marriage and family therapy program. Dr. Benson, welcome to Main Street. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Dr. Benson, we asked you to come on the program today to talk about various issues relative to transgendered folks that have surfaced in the media recently in the past few years, certainly here in North Dakota, and to get your background on what you talk about with students today relative to gender-affirming issues and gender-affirming care. And I think I'd like to start right there with your background, Dr. Benson. Tell us how you came to do um, research and to then teach about these issues in your professional oh, career. That's, yeah. a, that's a great question. Um, actually, it was uh, back when I was working on my PhD and was working on um, coursework in marriage and family therapy, and I knew that I wanted to be a professor, and I decided to take a course in gender studies. And my eyes were opened in ways that I didn't expect. Um, I learned all about people who had intersex conditions. I learned more about uh, transgender people and experiences. I had known people in my personal life, but you know, based on my own position as a cisgender woman, I had never really thought in depth. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm finishing a PhD. I'm going to go out and train therapists to work with families. And I'm really ignorant um, and this isn't okay. So at that point, I really worked to be more accountable, um, to learn more, to read more, to go to more trainings. And it, it really changed the trajectory of my work. At that time, there were not positive depictions of trans folks in mass media. There were very few trans identified people who were service providers and that were doing the work, or if they were, they had to be really quiet because uh, there weren't protections. So we've seen quite a bit of change over the last 15, 20 years in terms of people who have lived experience that are able to share their own voices and own experiences. So I'm actually very mindful that when I'm speaking, like in an interview like this, that I am not speaking on behalf of a community that I'm not a part of, but really working to stand with and share some of the concerns from my professional perspective um, to help clarify points for people and help them uh, really find a point of compassion um, rather than um, what we sometimes see happen is people don't understand and then they end up acting in discriminatory ways. And I think you're right. I think some people may feel compassion and understanding, but other people feel fear, um, confusion, maybe even anger. What misinformation that is out there, Dr. Benson, would you like to address that might put some more accurate information into the hands of folks who are thinking about transgender issues? Sure. Well, I think for starters, what we're seeing right now are really um, children in the crosshairs of some um, big social, uh, political, cultural debates. And what I would love for people to do is step back and think, these are children. You know, we, we see big, these big debates around what restroom they can use. And I mean, this is just a simple act of living. If you are a human being and you want to leave your house, you have to be able to use the restroom. So can we just think about what do children need to learn, <laughs> you know, that, that nobody is going and, and um, inflicting harm. These are not kids that are starting trouble, you know, um, that we should just be supporting children to start with. Um, and then just information about what is gender affirming care and what does that look like over the life course? The way that we would support a child who is um, maybe stating that the, the sex they were assigned at birth is not aligning with the way that they feel about themselves, who is five, is very different than how we might talk to a child with this, a similar experience who is 15, you know, and, um, and in conjunction with endocrinologists and other medical and mental health professionals, they can help guide families to figure out the best plan for that child. Um, and what we see happening is politicians, people with strong opinions, uh, are putting ideas out into our culture, into the news cycle that's, that is just factually inaccurate. Um, for example, I, I actually had to have a conversation with a colleague recently um, because they understood 
that gender affirming care for a young person involve a surgical intervention and we were talking about a 10 year old. I have never met a physician that would recommend any kind of surgical intervention for a 12 year old. That's just not what gender affirming care is. But there are these kind of extreme ideas that are out there <laughs> that um, don't actually reflect what's happening. And what people can do is they can they can go to accurate websites like the Fenway Institute. They can they can look up information, but they're not doing that um, to have a better sense of what is gender affirming care for a young person. And that's really making sure that they can socially transition, that we use pronouns that reflect how they see themselves and how they experience the world, names that reflect who they are, um, and, uh, uh, you know, supporting them and presenting their gender to the world in a way that makes them comfortable. It's They're not harming anybody else, um, you know, and what we do know is that when these kids are able to express themselves in a way that feels good to them, their risk factors go significantly down. Children who are trans are more likely to be bullied. Um, they are more likely to face uh, anxiety, substance abuse, depression, suicidality, not because they are trans, but because of the way they are treated and the way that they experience rejection, even in their families. Let's talk about that 10-year-old you talked about where mm -hmm. gender-changing surgery is not ever recommended to your knowledge. But what does it mean to be transgender? Can you help us with a definition? I would be happy to share what I know from talking to people. But again, I want to reiterate that this is not my lived experience. But when we're talking about people who are transgender or gender nonconforming, um, we're referring to a group of people who at birth, you know, they, the doctor assigns a person, you're male or female, going to have one or the other <laughs> in regards to choices. And then parents assume gender based on the sex that's assigned at birth. And, um, and as children develop, they will come to realize who they are in the world. And most children um, have some congruency between the sex they were assigned at birth and the gender that they feel reflects who they are. Um, but what we've also known for decades, before we discussed any kinds of um, transgender experiences, what we have known in the human development, child development research, kids develop a sense of their gender between ages two and three. So I sometimes will hear adults say, well, how can a kid know? They're only four. Actually, decades and decades of research has showed us that all children figure out their gender around ages two or three. Now, does that mean we do anything permanent with a three-year-old? Of course not. We listen to them. We support them. We hear what they have to say. And we let them to continue to live as they are. If that continues over the course of time, if, you know, they turn eight and they're still saying, hey, you're getting it wrong, or even if they turn five and they say, hey, you're getting it wrong, you know, it's important to listen to children. We're visiting with Dr. Kristen Benson. She's a program director of the Marriage and Family Therapy Program at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, and a former associate professor at North Dakota State University. And the topic today is transgender people. How do people transition, Kristen? What does that mean? Well, people transition in a variety of ways. Um, some people, it's... Uh, please use this pronoun, and this is the name that I use. Uh, for other people, they might um, change the way that they dress or present themselves. There's not really one way to transition or be transgender. It's, it's unique to each specific person. Um, some people experience gender dysphoria. Uh, that is, um, uh, that's actually a diagnosis in the, the DSM. It's a mental health diagnosis. And that is extreme distress that a person might experience around the incongruence between the sex they were assigned at birth and the way they experience their gender in the world. Um, and for some people, they find relief from that by undergoing different kinds of medical procedures. Um, either through hormone therapy or through surgical interventions. Uh, unfortunately, in our culture, we tend to focus on surgery. Where this becomes very problematic is that we would never in any other context feel like it was appropriate to talk about someone's genitals, right? That, that's, that's just not appropriate conversation. But that's a question and that's a conversation we have pretty frequently about trans people. And quite frankly, 
people's private parts are just that they're private they're nobody else's business so it, it's kind of fascinating and also concerning that that tends to be the focus on a lot of these public conversations and we're missing the important pieces and that is that um, transgender people especially trans people of color are at very high risk for um, being the victims of violent crimes and murder um, they are more likely to experience uh, unemployment and homelessness um, and a variety of other social concerns or personal concerns because of the way they're treated in our culture. Um, you know, people that have no protections and they're fired from their job because they're found out. You know, we don't see that happening to any other group of people in the way that we do with trans people. So on one hand, they're being, you know, people can be treated poorly, they don't have legal protections, and then we're going to question who they are in the world. And that's a concern. And so we're not doing much to support a group of people. And instead, we see some legislative initiatives that actually create more hardship. There are people who instinctively perhaps respond to people, as I said earlier, with fear, maybe even with anger. What mm -hmm. do you tell those folks? I'm curious where they came to believe what they believe and why they believe what they believe. And what do the experiences of another human have to do with your quality of life? Um, and, and that's actually a question I, I wonder quite frequently just to myself is why is there so much reaction to the choices of people, families, children by people who, who this doesn't really impact who they are or how they exist in the world? Dr. Benson, there are um legislative issues that have now surfaced across the country and certainly here in North Dakota. You touched on one just a moment ago about using certain preferred pronouns for younger people specifically, even though as we speak, there is a bill in front of the North Dakota legislature that would ban the use by schools. What's your message to legislators who may be listening? Please listen to children and look at the research. Ignore the rhetoric, look at the research. The research shows overwhelmingly that when these children are supported, they do well. When they are not supported or they feel rejection or they are undermined, their risk factors for all kinds of lifelong problems increase. So this isn't a matter of opinion. This isn't a matter of what your faith community tells you. This is really about if we believe in the well-being of children then we need to do what all of our major medical associations, all of our mental health associations claim are best practices. And the best practices are to listen to the children and to have those decisions be made with a qualified medical and mental health professional. These I mean, are not decisions that should be made by legislators. What does it mean, Dr. Benson, to support, we've used that word quite a bit today, a transgender person? Listen to them, listen to people, and when they tell you what their pronoun is, believe it and use it. When they tell you what their name is, believe it and use it, and just really respect people as we would otherwise. The bar is really low. It's not hard to support other humans. We do it every day in our lives, right? We listen to who people are, and we honor who they are. Um, this is no different. There are different ways that transgender people express their identity. Um, some very passive, some not so passive. What should people understand about the way someone expresses their gender identity? I'm not sure what there is to understand except for we are all unique people in every aspect of who we are, from you know our food preferences to what kind of style we like to wear and how that reflects who we are in the world. So it's, it's the same thing. I mean, what's interesting about gender is that the norms around what we consider to be gendered, like a feminine or masculine, those change over time. So things that we see as being particularly feminine at one point in history in another location at another point in time, um, they might be considered to be more masculine. Uh, I think about when I was in high school, boys did not paint their fingernails. Now it's more acceptable for boys to paint their fingernail if they're like black. But if they have like long pink acrylic nails, then that would be considered feminine. I know that seems like a silly example, but it, it demonstrates over time how those rules have changed and the assumptions associated with those rules have changed, but there's still rules in place. And at the end of the day, 
What does it matter to anyone else? Dr. Benson, I'm sure that science is every day providing us with new information about this issue. Do we know anything about the genetics that might be involved? Is this ongoing research, or are we understanding more and more from a genetic level, a more deep science level about the issues that transgendered people have before there them? There is some um, genetic research taking place that is outside of the scope of my area of expertise, so I don't have too much to comment on there. I think as a social scientist, I say, yes, that's important. And at the same time, we don't always understand everything. <laughs> and we have people and all people deserve to live with dignity. All children deserve access to education. People should be able to work and live, you know, and not be at risk for being you know, kicked out of their housing because of who they are. So I, I think, you know, yes, there is some science around uh, how does one become transgender? And at the same time, you know, on the social science side, I'm most interested in how can people live long, happy, um, fulfilling lives. What's the parent's role here? Is it simply one of support? There may be parents who are listening that have significant questions about their children relative to transgendered issues. What do you tell parents? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. Um, it's important for parents to listen to children, but also for them to get support for themselves, for them to be able to connect with other parents who have maybe been through this, this experience with their own children, for them to consult with qualified medical and mental health professionals so that they can learn more. Um, in my own research, when I have interviewed parents, they many of them talked about, I didn't really know or understand gender issues or what what transgender even meant until this showed up. This was my family. This was my child. I loved my child. I didn't know what to do. I had to hurry up and educate myself so that I could figure out my next steps. And so I, th I think those were parents that really took some important initiatives and they were able to connect with other parents. And so when they were able to have their experience normalized, when they were let access um, helpful resources, it changed everything. And so that's what I recommend for parents if they're starting to notice things. And also not to assume, I mean, especially when children are very young. Uh, my own child who just turned seven last week, you know, when she was little, she thought every day she was gonna wake up to be someone or something different. You know, some of that is just developmental creative play. And for some children, it's much more significant and important to who they are in the world. And so we continue to listen and be curious and ask questions and then kind of see what happens. And if you notice that it's persistent um, and ongoing, then that's a great time to start reading books. Um, there are wonderful children's books now. I know that they're at risk for not being as accessible, but um, they are out there. There's wonderful children's books, books written specifically for parents, by parents, or parents by professionals um, that really help to demystify um, a lot of the questions that parents have, especially early on. That is another perhaps new law that the North Dakota legislature is dealing with on whether to prohibit public libraries from maintaining materials that might have um, information for transgender folks. So I think that is also important to disclose. There's this idea of sports participation by transgendered athletes. People look at this from 30,000 feet and saying, well, that's not fair. Again, we use the example of the Penn State swimmer who's a transgendered woman and becomes then dominating in her sport and her fellow athletes, certainly different fans, have different reactions. What are your thoughts about an issue like that? Yeah, that particular topic, it, that is beyond the scope of what I study. What I can say um, is I've, I've, I don't focus so much on collegiate, but when I think about children in schools um, and you know grade school ages, we know that kids who participate in extracurriculars, especially sports, tend to do really well. It lowers risk factors, right? So they are less likely to um, be involved in drugs and alcohol. There are just so many protective factors that are uh, relevant when we see that children are active in extracurriculars. And now we have this population of kids, trans kids, who we know are at high risk and have a lot of risk factors for the ways that they're treated, higher risks of anxiety, depression, you know, those, those topic of those issues that I mentioned earlier, and 
we're going to say, here's this thing we know. We know that extracurricular sports create positive outcomes for kids, but you're not going to be allowed to participate in them, even though we know you're at even higher risk for negative outcomes. I just question that. And, you know, I think it if we focus on competition in sports and the way that we have developed um, athletics in our schools, which are, you know, very much based on gender, we miss some of the, I think, the more important pieces, which are related to um, kids' well-being and their mm -hmm. overall well-being. And I wish we could just kind of broaden the lens and think about these questions through that broader perspective about what's really best for all kids. Dr. Benson, there are people listening today that are going to disagree with almost everything you have said. Sure. What's your message to them? My message would be to try to find a place of compassion. Uh, we don't always understand what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes, but we generally have a sense of what it means to live in a, in a just and fair world where people get to you know, wake up in the morning and have a good day. And what are the things that make that happen? I mean, the, it's, it's pretty simple. I think uh, even though we've, we've seen it problematized in our socio-political context, um, but really, how do we honor the dignity of other people and allow people to make the best decisions for themselves, allow families to make the best decisions for their children, and listen to the experts. There are people that have been doing research, that have been involved in medical care for many, many, many years. Um, the data is there. There's a reason that we have best practices that are supported by our major medical and mental health associations. These are not just people that have opinions. These are people that have been serving our communities for a very long time, and they do know. Um, and so I just encourage folks not to listen too much to the political discourse and to, to try and approach other people. Um, with humility and compassion first. Is there a place, Dr. Benson, as we wrap up our conversation, that you would recommend people should go to get the most up-to-date information? I recommend uh, the Fenway Institute has some good medical information. That's, that's Fenway? Uh, Fenway. Okay. Not Boston. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend Caitlin Ryan's research, the Family Acceptance Project. Her scholarship has actually shown that when those kids have just one parent who doesn't reject them. I'm not even talking about being supportive. I'm not talking about hanging a pride flag. I'm just saying not saying hateful things in front of the child. The risk factors go down. The more supportive adults are in the lives of these children, the better these children's outcomes. But for, you know, again, that bar is low that if children are just not exposed to rejecting parents and rejecting family members, they do better. Another resource that I would recommend to parents who might have questions, especially if they have a pre-adolescent or adolescent teenager, would be a book called The Transgender Teen, a handbook for parents and professionals supporting transgender and non-binary teens. Uh, and that is a book that I've recommended to many clients and colleagues alike. Dr. Kristen Benson is a former associate professor of human development and family science at North Dakota State University and is now an associate professor in human development and psychological counseling and Program Director of the Marriage and Family Therapy Program at Appalachian State University in North Carolina. Dr. Benson, thank you so much for joining us today on Main Street. Thank you for having me. The news is next. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. Forecasters with the National Weather Service in Grand Forks are unsure exactly where the heaviest impacts of today's incoming winter storm could be, but say heavy snow will be the biggest issue with this system. Austin Perot is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. He says a winter storm warning will begin at 3 p.m. this afternoon as the snow starts coming in from South Dakota, with counties south of I-94 being included in that. Perot says at least six inches of snow could be expected along this band, with several more possible in isolated areas. We do know that at least some areas within the warned area, the winter storm warning area, will get to that six-inch-plus threshold, but not everyone within the warning will. So Cass County and Barnes County and Clay County, by extension, are in the winter storm warning, but not all of the county will experience those six inches. So that's something that's really important to realize, and again, with the shifting in, in the location of snowfall, 
um, that could change drastically. So if we get a more of a shift further north with that snow ban, then we will cross those six-inch threshold in the Fargo-Moorhead metro area and Valley City area and pretty much the whole I-94 corridor. Perot says the timing of the greatest impacts will be this afternoon into late evening with heavy snow falling at a rate of an inch an hour expected. He says visibility could be zero in many areas. The winter storm warning continues through 3 p.m. tomorrow. North Dakota lawmakers are back in session tomorrow following the week-long crossover break. Members of the Fargo City Commission were given an update on this session uh, this afternoon. Their legislative liaison, Terry Efforts, says while there are a number of bills to keep tabs on, there will be a need to carefully select what issues they want to press for. And that includes a bill that would eliminate Fargo's current voting system. You don't want to provoke any legislators to think, oh, Fargo, what are they doing? You know, but... When it comes to the voting bills, I think that if you were to come up strong with the voting bill, they would rather see you standing up for that than some of the policy bills. Just in the eyes of the legislators, they would rather see you stand up for your voting system as opposed to, say, the transgender bills, the library bills, those things that are more hot-button issues. Another bill caught in the balance is funding for the Red River Water Supply Project. In an exchange with Mayor Tim Mahoney, Commissioner John Strand questioned why the city has to tread lightly when it comes to pushing for the right thing. So for supportive infrastructure, we have to sell our souls? Not exactly, John. And our values and our principles and our support of human beings? You can still support those things, but you don't they? have to go against the bills. You can why, support why those. Why can't our legislators support human beings and human rights? Effort says the approval voting bill is expected to be heard this week in the Senate Judiciary Committee. She says at this point it could be an uphill battle for the city. The measure has passed the House and the Senate Judiciary Committee will likely not be friendly to the city's arguments. And six leaders, including two commanders and four of their subordinates, have been fired from Minot Air Force Base without explanation. Colonel Gregory Mayer, who ran the 5th Mission Support Group, and uh, Mayor Jonathan Welsh, uh, the 5th Logistics Readiness uh, Squadron Commander, and four others were fired due to a loss of confidence in their ability to lead, according to the Air Force. Mayer held the support group's top job for eight months after arriving at Minot last June. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. Sex trafficking is a serious and devastating problem that affects people of all genders, ages, and backgrounds. However, indigenous women are disproportionately affected by sex trafficking compared to other populations. Joining us to discuss is Ijaz Khan, who is filming the movie Trapped, a fictional narrative film that tells the story of sex trafficking in a small town in North Dakota. The filming is underway in Linton, North Dakota. Ijaz Welcome to Main Street. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me uh, at your station. Sure. Ijaz, tell us about the background before we get to where we are today. What is it that caused you to have this topic rise to the top of something that you wanted to do? Um, You know, you speak about indigenous. So uh, it started with that, actually. Not this exact topic, but I was up in the North Pole. And I was in a small town called Greasefjord, and um, the population there is about 132 people that live there. So I had to shut my shoot down because the uh, the weather was horrible, and I came back to town, which was about 14 hours on snowmobile. And when I got to town, I had two days because there was the flight wasn't going to take off, uh, you know, for two days. So I was walking around and I in town uh, with 132 people that lived there. There were like maybe 35, 40 buildings. And there was this one large building. And I walk into that building and it was a school. Uh, so they had a school for uh, kindergarten all the way up to 12th grade all in one building. And when I went there and I met the principal, I introduced myself and uh, you know, he asked someone to help, and the girl comes out and helps me, and she was indigenous. And she gets us something to drink, uh, coffee and some fruits and whatnot. He introduces me to her, and he says she's a grandma. And she wasn't more than, uh, in my opinion, more than 32 years old. Uh, 
So it started there, and they turned around and they were speaking. The principal, uh, who was from Toronto, he uh, started to speak to me about how the rapes happen uh, at the age. The girls get pregnant at the age of 12, 13 years old. Goodness. and And there's nothing they can do about it simply because in, the, in their culture, uh, indigenous culture, it's the girl turns into a woman, I believe, at the age of 11 or 12, something stupid like that. Um, but they were torn uh, in between the Canadian law and the uh, Inuit um, culture. So it started there, and it just started to bother me. Uh, then when I came to Linton, North Dakota, a few years later, to film uh, horses and my my film that I did before in North Dakota called Before They Vanish. I met this girl and she came to my set and we started to talk and she started to tell me her story and the story was uh, was horrible. Uh, you know her her mom's boyfriend raped her and um, and then she ran away. Um, and, you know, it just turned into a nightmare for her life. So at that point, I went back to New York. I spoke to my wife, and both of us agreed that we should make a film like this. So this way it will help, uh, I'm not going to say educate, but it would help people understand this topic and understand that it happens in our backyard. According to National Institute of Justice Statistics, just want to get this out there, indigenous women are two and a half times more likely to experience sex- sexual assault compared to other women in the United States. And when you start talking about experiencing what is involved with sex trafficking, the numbers are even higher. What has been the reception of local people in Linton once they learned that you wanted to do a movie about this very difficult topic? You know, it's not just Linton. Of course, Linton, everyone there is helping me. I I should say everyone there. I mean, the sheriff there, Gary, he's helping me out. The... um, Paul Silvanagel, he's helping me out. I have this wonderful uh, human, uh, Ashley, who is, uh, she's my backbone here in in North Dakota. She's helping me out a lot. The gas station, the country climate, the bar, uh, the restaurant, I mean, just about everybody. And then it's not just Linton because then it trickles over to Bismarck. And in Bismarck, we have uh, Barb, who has become my partner in writing the story. She was a teacher, and she's had a very long teaching career, so she was uh, correcting me with my my English and so on. So she's my writing partner. Uh, But people in Bismarck, the women in Bismarck, it's just people are coming out of everywhere to help. You wanted to cast for this film actors and actresses from North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Was that hard to do? Uh, very hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it was. How did you? How did you go about the casting process? Um, well, you know, for the first part, we cast people from from my uh, roller desk, basically the people I knew and so on. And of course, they were coming out of uh, L.A. and and New York. Uh, but then there are other parts that we needed locals to help out, and it was just absolutely a nightmare. Uh, but we have found amazing actors uh, who are supporting, and they're you know they're not really doing this because they because the pay is so high. They're doing it simply because they believe in the cause, and and people have come out of Fargo and and Linton and Bismarck actors who are helping us out and, and being a part of this film. Ijaz, you describe this as a fictional narrative, even though you came across the desire to do this movie from a, from a real-world experience. So tell me, what is a fictional narrative? Um, so it's nothing but bending facts, and I call it fictional simply because it's not a documentary. I'm not documenting uh, what's happening. Uh, I am creating what's happening. Of course, it's coming out of true story, uh, part of it. And then I take it and I make it into uh, mm, keeping the audience in mind and I change and bend the story a little bit. That's why it's fictional. It's not 
uh, it's not being documented while the event was happening or after the event happened. What's your film schedule, and where will you film in Linton? How do you design what it is you're about to shoot in a town that already exists? Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I have been in Linton for... I've been visiting Linton for, I should say, about four years now, close to four years. And uh, there, are, you know, Linton's a beautiful place. And I, I, I mean, I chose Linton because the story originated from there. This girl was from uh, Linton. And the other reason why I wanted to do it and the reason why I think Linton would be the right place is because... The location is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, putting myself into those situations scene by scene was easier for me because I've seen Linton for three and a half years. And, you know, you go back, you write a scene, and you say, this scene will look good over here, and then you put it over there and, and hope that you can achieve the location. So that was one of the reasons why we chose Linton. Uh, many people have asked me why not why haven't you do, why aren't you doing this in new york and uh and the answer is just simply because the story comes out of here. Tell me about the production challenges of doing something like this in small town north dakota <laughs> um, uh, let's start with the weather. <laughs> Balmy weather is not conducive to this movie. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> you know, uh, the actors, the producers, um, my wife, everyone kept on saying, why do you want to do this in the winter? Why don't you just go there during the summer and everyone's going to be happy and and so on. And I, I choose the winter because I believe that it's a very it's a brutal subject, and I think winter brings out the worst and the best in us. So we might as well do it where I'm capturing the raw emotions. Uh, so winter is a huge challenge. I love challenges, so I thought let's just do it in the winter. Then the other challenge is coming here with a lack of crew. I function out of out of. New York, where you know you have crew that's used to you and has been working with you from the past twenty years, and then you come over here and you're trying to find a boom person, and you don't have anyone coming to <laughs> Linton, North Dakota, to do boom or to do any other things, and then you just make do and you uh, you try and explain it to the people. This is how it's done, and you work with them. I mean, that's what I did for the previous film. And it turned out to be good to my liking, and I think this is going to do the same thing. So it's a challenge, but I think the challenge is what makes you overcome it, right? We're visiting with Ijaz Khan. He is producing and filming the movie Trapped. Ijaz, tell me about um, what you've learned about in your in your research for this movie. I think it's important to note that sex trafficking of indigenous women is often linked to historical trauma, uh, poverty, systemic racism. Are those things that you've come across as you've been researching how to write this movie? Um, yeah, I mean, the research was, uh, I've interviewed about 80 girls, 82 girls, women. Uh, there's one story that hits me hard is uh, there was a girl who was 11 years old when she got first raped uh, by her father. And um, she just thought that was something no fathers normally do. So it's been, a, it's been challenging talking to these girls because putting myself in their shoes, I don't think I would be able to handle it. I mean, you know, hats off to them that most of them have... Uh, gone through this um, experience and come out better on the other side. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the interviews were pretty hard on me. I didn't, I wasn't happy with it. Uh, but I had to do it, so I, you know, discussed and spoke to them as best as I possibly could. Um, the sad part is that some of them really thought this was normal. Some of them just 
thought that this is the way of life. Mm. Has systemic racism broached itself in your discussions? Um, I I don't think so. I I didn't I didn't get that. Mm-hmm. I didn't get that from anyone really. I I don't think that there is any kind of racism when it comes to sex abuse. Um, you know, it's uh, it's one person taking advantage of another one, and I don't think it's a race uh, discussion on that. I I I personally didn't feel it. I don't think so. What are you hoping people feel when they watch the movie when it's finished? Um, I'm going to – so we have taken um, decisions, made decisions that we won't show skin. And the reason for doing that is because we would like to get a PG rating. And the reason why we're pushing for the PG rating is because – if the girls or the guys are young and they see something like that and it puts fear into them, they will think five times before or 50 times before um, thinking of running away from home. And that is the goal. The goal is if we can, um, if we can prevent even one girl or a guy not running away from home or sitting down and talking to their parents or the trust ones before making a rash decision of running away. We, myself and my entire crew, my cast, everyone who's touching Trapped uh, would feel successful. Tell me about your creative process, Ejaz, from even pre- to post-production. How do you ensure that your vision is then realized on screen? Um. So it's, for me, it started off with getting a story, which I was lucky and fortunate enough to get that, uh, parts of it. And then you fill in the blanks and you make sure that it's uh, a long enough uh, story that has decent ups and downs and that would motivate the people to, uh, to take some action in their own life. Um, so that's one. And then after that, you you put it through the two plus two equals four. Uh, once you pass that, which means, you know, this scene is, is going to be stitched with another scene and this scene is going to be stitched with another scene. And if she's going to uh, use this red color in scene number one, then will she use the, the red color in scene number 64? And makes sense. That, I mean, that's what I call two plus two. Mm-hmm. Uh, once that is done, then you go back to the drawing board and you start to think about how uh, how real is it? Is it real? I mean, I don't. I believe in Superman. Uh, my 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 figure is Wolverine. I love him, uh, but I know that that's not real. But we agree to to make our make a fool of ourselves when we viewing that and we start to believe that it's real. Uh, my creative process, I personally like to bring realism to the film and for that purpose once I'm done with the two plus two then I go back and I sit with my team and I sit with myself and and we talk about how real it is I mean if it's not real then we scratch the scene and we start again what inspired you to become a filmmaker Ejaz I I didn't plan on I didn't plan on being a filmmaker. I was, I was originally a, um, I was a in the garment business, and uh, I left that business. And one thing led to another. I turned into a fashion photographer, and uh, one of the reasons why I didn't want to be in the film business is because my, my dad, my uncle, my aunt, my brother, my cousin, whoever. I mean, everyone in our film in our family is in the film business, and I said. I want to be different. So I ran away, came to New York. I got into the clothing business. Everything was doing well. Uh, I had an event in my life. And after that, I couldn't help but pick up the camera and start photographing. So I became a photographer. From being a photographer, I started doing commercials. And I have to be honest, this wasn't a thought uh, about career. I just fell in my lap. And I did my first film. And 
that was the problem because the first film that I did landed up at Cannes Film Festival and I was nominated for Best Director and and that was the start. And I started to say to myself, hey, I'm better than Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, once I got that in my brain and I went to France for the film festival, I, I you know, it's like a drug. Um, I got back into it. My family called me and said, hey, you know, we've been telling you to get into film business since you were a child. You ran away from home and now you're getting into it. So, yeah, I didn't choose it. It chose me. How do you stay current and up-to-date with trends and technology and filmmaking? Because I'm guessing it changes and changes frequently, and you have to have some way to stay creative and creatively current. Um, I, I live in my own bubble. I don't really focus on what's current, and I don't focus on what's new, and I don't focus of, on any of that. Um, you know, if it is appealing to me and I've convinced myself that it's good, then it's good. That's how I function. I, I, I'm not a deep person like everybody makes me out to be like, oh, my God, you must do this and you must do that. And, you know, that's how you be, become creative. It doesn't work for me that way. I think the simpler, the better. And the simple way for me to live is to live in my own bubble. Ijaz Khan is filming the movie Trapped, a fictional narrative film that tells the story of sex trafficking in a small town in North Dakota. Filming is now underway. What other projects have you done, Ijaz? I worked on a film called uh, Before They Vanish, uh, coming out of Linton. Then the film before this was a film called The Telling, that film happened in uh, the time period of World War II with the Holocaust. So it wasn't a film on Holocaust, but it was a film on um, on a Jewish family that, that was in the Holocaust. Uh, and prior to that was another film called Legacy, the one that got me addicted to filmmaking. Um, can I just uh, go back a little bit about Trapped? I just want... I just wanted to say that you know we are giving away a um, a a um, trip to New York for the premiere. So if people want to support this project, we'll be bringing them into New York. Uh, airfare, hotel will be paid for for the premiere, and uh, you can find that at ejazzcanscinema uh, uh, dot com. And uh, we are planning on choosing a lucky winner from Bismarck or Linton or North Dakota somewhere. Okay. Ijaz, when might we see a completed trapped movie? Um, I'm going to give post about eight months. So I believe we should be done with the filming in in March. Um, and eight months after that, I would say December or January of next year. Do you have plans for a premiere in place? Uh, yes, we do want to have a premiere in Bismarck. I wish I could have it in Linton, but I don't see it happening there. So we would like to do it in Bismarck. Um, and where, I don't know yet. And, of course, we're going to have another premiere in New York because that's my my backyard. So, Well, we wish you the best, Ejaz. Ejaz Khan, who's filming the movie Trapped, a fictional narrative film, that tells a story of sex trafficking in a small town in North Dakota. Ejaz, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Dakota Datebook is next. The Bismarck Mandan Symphony Orchestra continues the season with Between Two Cultures, March 11th at the Belmayhus Auditorium. Hear violin virtuoso Katia Moeller in a violin concerto of Samuel Coleridge Taylor and Bismarck's Jason Thome singing the Lakota Victory Song by Jared and Pichahaha Tate. More concert and ticket information can be found online at BismarckMandanSymphony.org. Arts programming on Prairie Public is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, a state agency developing, promoting, and supporting the arts in North Dakota. This is Dakota Datebook for February 28th. Hats can serve a functional purpose, protecting us from the sun and the cold. They can also make a bold fashion statement. The early 20th century was the heyday of hat design. 
Women's hats became large and extravagant. There were hats for every possible occasion, including walking, riding, morning wear, evening wear, and even hats to wear at home. Hats that incorporated feathers and even whole birds became popular. This created a tremendous demand for feathers and birds. Thousands of snow egrets, owls, herons, and other exotic birds were slaughtered in the name of fashion. On this date in 1913, the National Association of Audubon Societies expressed concern about the wholesale destruction. The Audubon Society noted that several states had already passed laws prohibiting the sale of feathers and birds. A delegation was sent to Washington to ask that Congress extend the prohibition to the entire country. North Dakota is home to many of the birds that were coveted by the fashion industry. Farmers, ranchers, and sportsmen understood the important role the birds played in both the economy and ecology of the state. In addition to helping maintain a healthy environment, sporting birds attract hunters to the state. These groups backed efforts to rein in the fashion industry's appetite for birds. Today, many of North Dakota's birds are protected. Both the bald eagle and the golden eagle are protected under federal law. North Dakota does not have a state endangered species law, but the state does have a wildlife action plan to address concerns about bird populations. There are several species that are considered the highest conservation priority, including the greater sage grouse, the American bittern, and the lark bunting. Some species of birds have made a comeback, but they were not all so fortunate. The passenger pigeon was especially easy to shoot and net since they flew in enormous flocks that were miles wide. In 1914, the last known passenger pigeon died at the Cincinnati Zoo. In 1947, environmentalist Aldo Leopold wrote, Men still live, who in their youth remember pigeons. Trees still live, who in their youth were shaken by a living wind. But a few decades hence... Only the oldest oaks will remember, and at long last, only the hills will know. Today's Dakota Date Book was written by Carol Butcher. I'm Errol Pepcorn. Dakota Date Book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding by Humanities North Dakota, North Dakota's largest lifelong learning community. And that's a wrap for this edition of Main Street. Thank you very much for joining us. Tomorrow on the show, when people are having a tough time, it's easy to ask, how can I help? Special contributor Brandy Malarkey explores ways we can actually be helpful in her project, Practical Kindness. Plus, we'll learn how the We Rise event from the North Dakota Women's Network helps women who are running for office. That's coming up tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.